Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm your host, Carl Morand. Today I'm talking with Dr. Alan Fromhurst, author of the new book, Qatar, Modern History. Dr. Fromhurst is currently a professor at Georgia State University, and before that he spent a year teaching at Qatar University, where he conducted research for this book. In the book, Dr. Fromhurst goes beyond the common focus on Qatar's oil economy and analyzes the cultural and political forces that have shaped Qatar's history. Among other things, he discusses Qatar's formation as an independent state, the effect of its large percentage of expatriate workers, the interaction of the various tribes that govern Qatar, and how the Althani tribe emerged as the top amongst equals. The book focuses not just on the history of Qatar, but also on how the interaction of its various cultural, political, and economic realities will shape its future. Alan, thank you for joining us on the program today. If thank you. Would, if you would, could you start out by uh, talking a little bit about uh, your, your background and uh, what led you to write this book? I grew up on a tree farm in Oregon, so... Um, many people often ask me, why, how did you get into Middle Eastern studies and Middle Eastern history? I spent a year after my studies at Dartmouth College. I had a great professor there who encouraged me to do a Fulbright in Morocco. And that really got me started. I was fascinated by this 12th century empire called the Almohads and how just a group of tribes that seemed completely disorganized all of a sudden um, got themselves together and started an empire that controlled the Western Mediterranean and had a profound influence on European history. And from that, I continued to study the Middle East, and I was offered a position to work at Qatar University as an assistant professor of Middle Eastern history, where I actually taught Middle Eastern history to Qataris in English because it was a program to encourage English language proficiency at Qatar University. And that year in Qatar was uh, fascinating to me in, in Doha. And I realized, looking at the bibliography on Qatar and literature on um, this part of the Gulf, that there is very little that has been written, um, especially very little that has been written with any sort of uh, scholarly um, interpretation or scholarly criticism of the typical sort that you'll find um, in most of the rest of the of the region and in world history in general. In fact, the only book on Qatar um, that is substantial on the history of Qatar was written in 1979, which is a long time ago and, and very much before many of these um, surprising changes and developments that have happened in Qatar since uh, 1995, when the current emir... Uh, Sheikh Hamad bin Khalifa Al Thani um, came to the throne after overthrowing his father. So that basically gives you an idea of background, um, how I got into this subject. Um, I'm actually trained as a historian of the medieval period, and I focused on North Africa, but 
I saw an opportunity to, to go into cluttery history because, in fact, many of the same themes um, apply to cutter as well. This idea of different tribal identities and lineages coming together, the also the impact of modernity and what that means in a society like cutter. And um, for me, what was fascinating is just this immense amount of wealth in one place um, and the contrast between that amount of wealth today and how poor Qatar was just in living memory in the 1940s. So what kind of changes does that occur? What kind of changes do not occur when you just get a boatload of wealth <laughs> that, is, that comes to port in your society? So um, those, those are some of the motivations behind um, the writing of this book. Okay. Could you uh, talk for a minute about the sort of pre-oil history? Because I know one of the things you seem to stress in the book is that the story of Qatar is much more than just the story of the oil wealth that has happened recently and that there is far more to it. <clears throat> yes, that's definitely true. What's interesting about Qatar um, pre-oil is that there was a much more, there's definitely much more of a sharing of power between different Qatari tribes. The authority of the Al-Thani Amir was only really recognized by the British government itself. And when it was recognized, it was in 1868, the Al-Thani um, tribal chief simply happened to be considered um, the first among equals. And there were even other chiefs before that that the British had nominally recognized. So there isn't a long, necessarily, um, lineage of legitimacy towards the Althani themselves. And it wasn't until Abdullah, Sheikh Abdullah, uh, as these oil concessions were being signed with the British, that they signed concessions only with the Emir himself as opposed to the country. So really, you have this influence of outside colonial powers um, who never really entered Qatar the same way they colonized other parts of the world, say in Africa or even other parts in the Middle East, but who really shaped the society in a way that that it it and governance in Qatar in a way that really didn't reflect the traditional roles. Um, it used to be true that different sheikhs or different um, chiefs of the, of the different tribes in Qatar, such as the Naimi um, and the Althani, the Suwaiti, the, the, uh, and, and, other, and other tribes all had uh, heads that were called emirs. So the idea that there was only one emir um, and that he should have absolute authority is in fact something of an innovation in uh, Qatari society. Um, and today, uh, we have a situation where the emir is, is claiming a certain amount of, of power and authority that doesn't reflect um, the traditional roles of, of consensus and the traditional roles of other Qatari tribes in society. And he's mainly done this by latching himself onto um, and by controlling much of the 
oil and natural gas wealth in the country is no longer dependent, of course, on revenue um, from the rest of the Qatari people. So in a classic Brontier system, what's called a Brontier state, it's a state where the, most of the wealth comes from a natural resource and or revenue, as opposed to from tax collection or from the actual citizenry. So there's no need to actually um, be concerned about what the citizenry has to say since you get most of your revenue from a uh, natural resource. So that's the situation here. We have a, a combination of both um, interaction with uh, outside powers and this frontier economy that's related to oil and natural gas wealth, really changing the nature of, um, of authority and rule and cutter. However, that doesn't mean that the memory of the past is gone and that these tribal structures have somehow dissolved and everybody is part of a, a single Qatari identity or Qatari nation. In fact, the notion of a single national identity in Qatar is, is very new. Um, and really the, the idea of a national day, the idea of national um, cohesive symbols, uh, that started when I was there in 2007. And it was focused around a history and a heritage that was um, focused on the current emir and the family of the emir, and really kind of sidelined the other um, the other tribes and the other families in Qatar. So it's a very interesting um, dynamic right now, and one of the weaknesses possibly of the current system is that the Althani tribe and a very small segment of the Althani tribe, a clan within the Althani that is around the Amir, seems to be somewhat isolating itself even further in, in, in claiming yet more power and in power over the succession as well and the family councils. Um, and they may be making themselves vulnerable or isolating themselves a little bit too much from the rest of Qatari society. So that's, that's one, uh, there's one possible vulnerability in that, um, in that trend. Um, so that gives you an idea of the role of the traditional um, tribal system and then how it's sort of being shaped, even manipulated by um, the current more authoritarian um, system of government. For there, did you find that uh, most people, their strongest ties and pride was in their tribe, or is there a, a growing sense of people viewing themselves as Qataris more so than their, their tribal affiliation? Um, there's an attempt, of course, by the emir and by the diwan, the diwan being the royal palace, to create a sense of Qatari identity. But it's a sense of Qatari identity that is tied to um, the heroism and the legitimacy of the emir as the lead ruler of the country. And uh, for example, Na Nation Day, which was established again in 2007, the, the year that I was there, it's focused on the Battle of Wajba, 
which was a battle fought by um, the uh, great grandfather of the current emir, by an ancestor of the current emir, um, Sheikh Qasim. And the focus is really just on Sheikh Qasim, and it's making Sheikh Qasim out to be this founding um, figure who defended the whole notion of an independent cutter. It, it creates a mythical a story or, an, or a mythical heritage narrative that, again, is focused on the sheikh as the essential means through which Qatar uh, maintained its independence and maintained, and through which Qatar can maintain its future as a viable state and as a viable nation. What is left out of that, of course, is the role of the other tribes in repelling um, the Ottomans at this decisive battle and um, other factors involved in the history that are that are often um, left to the side. So, yes, there are some Qataris uh, who definitely are beginning to feel a, a more of a sense of, of national pride. But still today, most Qataris will identify first with the, the heritage and stories and internal um, narrative of their own tribe. And tribal structure is even reflected in, in for example, voting. Um, there's a study done by a Qatari sociologist showing that voting patterns and um, and Qatar generally follow in the municipal elections, which basically were somewhat just symbolic elections. Um, they, they follow the loyalties of, of different tribes. And even the settlement patterns, for example, in the city of Doha, you'll have um, different clans and different families really conglomerating together in the same um, compound of households or, and so on. You'll even have, for example, the Bedouins in one part of the city and then the, the pearl fishing tribes in another. And then within that, you can, you can tell which section of the city is, is designated for which tribe. Um, I, sometimes it's hard to tell because most of the city is occupied by expatriates. But if you just look below the surface, you can still see these these structures existing. And even sometimes among my students, there would be um, situations where one student would call out some obscure historical reference <laughs> to a wrong that was done by another student's tribe, and they would. And then they would have to resolve that situation. I would try to stay out of it as much as possible. <laughs> so yes, um, there's certainly an attempt to create a more, a more of a national identity, but definitely um, tribal identity still still trumps that. You just mentioned the expatriate workers. What do you? What effect do you think the very large number? of people who are in Qatar being expatriate workers has on the attempts to instill a national unity and also on Qatari culture in general? That's a very good question. That's, that's a central theme that I discuss in my, in my book. I think there's, we need to think of new ways of approaching modernity in the Middle East. Um, most studies of modernity uh, and political science have really focused on strictly economic matters or political issues or, or even issues of um, um, 
issues of westernization and so on and so forth. But I think there's there, there are certain tools that have been developed in um, Western sociology um, that can help enlighten the Middle East, but, but can't necessarily be applied directly. And one of these tools was developed by a French um, sociologist called Emile Durkheim. And he developed this notion that when there's a division of labor, when there is increased industrialization and modernization, a society um, it goes through a process of, of breaking up traditional um, familial ties. Um, if you look back just a few centuries in European history, um, you'll find that, in, that, that most Europeans as well organize themselves around notions of lineage and loyalty to family and, and loyalty to a specific village and to a specific place. With industrialization, that led to a cutting off of those ties and those loyalties. And the result of that is this concept that Durkheim has called anomie, which is an, a notion of disconnect from um, the traditional ties that used to bind you. And it's, it's, it, it was caused by industrialization, by, again, the division of labor, that you were more identified by what you did, by what your job was, than by what your family was. And, and that's certainly true for us, for example, in the United States. Um, most people don't ask you first about your great-grandfather when they meet you. They ask you about what you're doing with your life, about about what you do, uh, not necessarily about who you are. If we, if we turn around now, though, and we look at Qatar, the first question that people ask about their identity, as we were discussing before, is about who they are. It is about what their great-grandfather did. It is about what um, their tribal identity um, still is. So how can that be the case if Qatar and these other Gulf countries are seen to be in this extremely hypermodern state of development. It's so much of their infrastructure is, is far and beyond what you can even find in most of the West. There's so much of their um, system of, of economy and development has been ex- so extremely successful. Well, the real question, the real answer to that is um, the price of change or the price of this modernity, uh, which has traditionally uh, been on the citizenry as a whole, on on the people living in the country, has been transferred to expatriates. So instead of having to go through the process of division of labor, instead of having to go through all the ills of industrialization that occurred in the West, these countries with their vast um, sources of, of oil wealth and that a need to really invest in domestic development um, have transferred these uh, these problems that occur with modernization to expatriate populations. So you'll have single South Asian men, which form the vast majority of the expatriates um, in Qatar, mostly from places like Hyderabad and, and Kerala and so on. Um, doing essentially most of the dirty work, and your and the Qataris themselves are left with the positions in government, 
um, with physicians directing organizations without necessarily the high demands um, being placed upon them. So you develop the system where you, where they are, of course, consent to um, the way things are governed because they are, they are not asked to, um, to deal with some of the, the consequences of a society moving into, moving into the modern world. And this is really problematic, however, in the long run, because the longer that you avoid really facing um, modernity, um, at some point your external revenue source, in this case oil and gas, is going to run out. And you're not and if and unless you do develop those skills, unless you do develop a certain free market division of labor within your own society, then your own people are going to be um, left far behind. So um, the country people know this implicitly. In fact, um, it really perhaps explains some of the negative reaction to to the vast number of expatriates in their society. About eighty percent, even ninety percent of Qatar is populated by expatriates. There's only about two hundred twenty thousand um, Qataris uh, have a total population of about one point seven million in the country. So it's about the same population as Baton Rouge. One could say, um, so it's a very small number of actual Qatari nationals, um, and they've demanded from um, the state and from the emir um, more training, more skills, and and more marketability. But at the same time, um, it's very difficult to transform such a small population into a labor force that is capable of, of building hyper-modern, extremely successful economy, which is essentially what Qatar has become today. So these these complexities, in many ways, they're unavoidable, um, and they seem to be inevitable, but they're also, uh, I think, um, interconnected. And in fact, when I was first speaking about the emir and, and the authoritarian system that is established, that system really is, is enhanced by the expatriate labor situation because the more that the emir can rely on, um, ultimately on expatriates for the country's development and not on his own people, the less he needs to be concerned about, again, what his own people are really demanding um, from him. So it's, it's really, um, it's really a story of certain, of, of a unique um, economic, political, and and social situation that is that is inter intertwined. Just uh, mentioned sort of reinvesting in the society and trying to help uh, educate Qataris. And in the book, you talk about uh, their big education push and bringing in uh, foreign universities. How do you think uh, that that will help to train Qataris, or is that not going to be particularly effective long-term? I think it will make some marginal improvements. Um, However, many of those Qataris will probably go abroad, um, if that's what their intention to begin with. 
a lot of the, the Qataris who go to these foreign universities are relatives of the emir, so they are really part of the Althani family. Um, and some Qataris who aren't in the royal family kind of see these American universities as really just, um, you know, another gift to the Althani family. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so it's, it's, there's an issue just of sheer numbers as well. There aren't really enough Qataris, even if you could train them to fulfill enough positions within the societies and the economy. Um, they are outnumbered by expatriates. They can't go back because um, that would lead to a, to a certain, um, once you're on a development track and you're developing this rapidly, if you move back too quickly, um, then you could have serious economic consequences. So it's, it is going to perhaps provide some remedial changes, but the one thing that it's not going to do, um, and this is crucial, is that these programs aren't really focused on developing internal crit- critical notions within Qatari society. So much of the way Qatar has been fashioned, especially in the modern, especially in the past 20 years, is how it's projected to the outside world. Um, and it's how it is projected also to the Qataris as, as sort of an ideal, as a, as, as a symbol, not necessarily encouraging internal criticism or encouraging in, internal wrestling with these problems or with of identity and modernity, um, or really involving Qataris truly in, in, in structure of government and politics. So they might be training a few, um, probably with the notion that they'll go abroad or that they will remain quite loyal to the family that they're already a part of and to the status quo. But what really needs to happen is for Qataris to be trained to ask questions about their own society um, and to really develop what we in, in, in the West often call a postmodern mindset to really ask the questions of, well, what is this development doing? What do we really want when we talk about um, economic progress? What are some of the consequences, both positive and negative, uh, about, about these decisions? Um, to really ask, well, why should why should everything be decided essentially by um, the emir and his close associates? As much as his decisions may have seemed positive, um, there's still, I think, in the long run, a need for inclusion of um, other countries in the process. So, the existence of the expatriates, though, in such large numbers can create a, a sense of, well, it's just us against them. So we can't really, I mean, should we really critique the system? Of course, the Emir does provide subsidies and, and, and helps Qataris from all different backgrounds and so on. Um, so it's, it's in the long run, um, the real challenge is going to be to, to break into this sort of system of, well, we have a free 
a somewhat free economy. Um, we have a growing um, and very wealthy middle class and, and, and a highly developed society in many different ways, but we don't have a free and developed uh, political system. So that's, that's the real conundrum right now in, in Qatar. Speaking of uh, people asking critical questions of Altani, while you were at uh, Qatar University, did you feel like there was academic freedom for people who wanted to ask critical questions, or was that mostly stifled? It's very interesting, um, because at one at some points when you're in Qatar, you feel that, oh, you're, it's as if you're on a liberal arts campus somewhere in the United States. The the, the, the types of questions they have during the BBC Doha debates or the, the types of things that are said and debated on Al Jazeera, which is uh, funded by um, the Al Thani Emir. Al Jazeera was founded at the same time as the current Emir Ahmed came to power. You, so you get this sort of explosion of this notion that, oh yeah, there's all these all this freedom and you can really say anything. But then when a line is crossed, um, then the doors close very quickly. And this did not necessarily happen to me personally, but um, there were instances, for example, the, um, there, there was a special commission for the freedom, freedom of the press, and one of the members was associated um, somehow with this Muhammad cartoon controversy. And it, it, it led to a, a, a major... Uh, crisis, and she had to be sent back to um, to Europe after that. And there, and, and there's a certain implicit notion that while we can discuss and critique issues in the wider Arab world in the Middle East, um, you can't really um, discuss or critique the um, system of power within Qatar. So again, things are really projected outward. And there's very little inward um, uh, questioning or, or inward notion of, well, what about Qatar and what about our situation here? As much as we're sending arms to the Syrian rebels or helping the overthrow of Ben Ali or the overthrow of Gaddafi, um, what, does, what, what is happening here in Doha never uh, doesn't really apply. There's very few... Um, Stories in Al Jazeera, of course, on on Qatar. Of course, that part of that is the fact that there's it's a smaller place, there's, there's much less news. But a part of that is is just the reality of um, this unspoken censorship um, that that does exist within Qatari uh, society. If that unspoken censorship wasn't there, do you feel like people would start to question, or would? Qataris have the opinion that we're doing very well, we're very wealthy, why rock the boat, essentially? Okay, this is the problem with censorship, or with self-censorship, <coughs> is that the best way to avoid self-censorship is not to be told that you can't speak. The best way to deal with self-censorship, or to increase internal discussion and necessary healthy criticism is for there to be actual enforceable institutions 
that protect those who do speak. Because simply being told, oh, of course, you can say what you want, um, there will be no consequences, and yet knowing that you don't have the protection necessary from that within the political system only makes self-censorship um, that much more of a problem. You, you can't avoid self-censorship in a political system that is fundamentally authoritarian. And that's, and that's simply um, unavoidable in Qatar. As much as the image of Qatar projects the outside world, it is of this free place, an open place where, where many issues are discussed for Qatar brings together many different um, parties, for example, Iran and the United States, um, issues about women's rights, and, and Sheikh Amoza, of course, is a, is a champion of this issues of Western education. And, and see, and, but then at the same time brings in uh, clerical or religious leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood, such as uh, Yusuf al-Qaradawi, as much as all of these sort of externally relevant discussions are going on, you're, you're going to have um, self-censorship about the internal situation in, in Qatar as long as there aren't institutional guarantees for those who would speak out. Because there are instances of people being, um, there was, there was uh, some religious judges who were, t- who, who were suspended um, about three years and so on. There is, there is instances of um, family members conspiring against the regime. There's always rumors of, of overthrows and plots that are probably mainly baseless, but there are some elements within um, country society that are very much against um, the current Amir and that have much of a stronger sense of loyalty to its father or to or to other parts of the authentic clan. And as much as, as those elements aren't really allowed to freely air their criticisms, and as long as people aren't really able to freely um, get a grasp of what their society really means beyond simply symbols that are sent down from, from above, from the Dewan, then I think you're going to have um, a certain inherent instability, even in, in a place with such um, vast wealth. It is currently the highest per capita GDP um, in the world. Um, so this, and, but, but the, there's a vulnerability to that underlying all that as well. Um, whenever you have essentially a single resource um, that you're dependent on for the whole, for your whole political, economic, social system, if that one uh, resource is somehow threatened, say there was a discovery that made it perhaps unnecessary to use uh, natural gas, or if there is a real movement to uh, other um, cleaner sources of energy, if there was um, some sort of geopolitical disruption, the Strait of Hormuz is cut off, you would have serious um, consequences uh, for society within Qatar, especially since these institutions um, had not been established to help um, to help really wrestle with those those unanswered questions that you encounter practically on a daily basis in, in Qatar.
mentioned uh, Al Jazeera. What effect do you think they have had uh, on the Arab world and also particularly in Qatar? It seems at least that they would they project an image that Qatar supports some level of free expression and freedom of speech. Is that how are they viewed within Qatar? Well, Al Jazeera, as I was explaining, was personally set up by the current Amir Sheikh But yes, as much it is, it is seen as a symbol of uh, free expression. But it wasn't simply to be a symbol of free expression that Al Jazeera was established. Al Jazeera was established with a specific geopolitical purpose by Qatar and by the Al-Thani as a means of increasing the stature and the prestige of a very small yet very wealthy place um, by really controlling the media environment within the Arab world Qatar can achieve a status and a stature far beyond what it had ever had or what it could ever dream to have on its own um, so there's a notion in um, on the Arabian Peninsula that goes all the way back to the time of the Prophet Muhammad that there's a word in Arabic called the Hakam. And in English, we have two separate words for Hakam, either leader or mediator or judge. In English, we kind of separate those two concepts. The judge is not necessarily seen all the time as, as the leader is, is sort of a separate category. In Arabian society and even in Arabian language, they are the same. Somebody who can be respected as a mediator who can really end um, conflicts between different tribes becomes, by default, the de facto leader of those two newly united tribes. And Muhammad the Prophet, of course, is the most important example of this, of of his being able to bring together um, all these different uh, lineages. So Qatar has kind of embraced this notion that, well, if we can find a way of controlling the space in which the questions are asked, we can gain prestige um, as a type of mediator and in that sense, a type of leader. And over the, the past 20 years, it's, it's prestige, it's authority, it's power, it's, it's, it's position as an essential um, player within the Gulf and now within the entire Arab League, of course, with the downfall of Egypt, uh, of Mubarak, excuse me, um, and internal issues in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, this place with only 200,000 Qataris, is, is really making decisions um, leading the Arab League. It's, it's really an extraordinary development. So Al Jazeera is yet one element, an entire strategy uh, that is developed in Qatar to really kind of capture the space um, in which questions are asked, not necessarily to take sides on, on the answers to particular questions, but really through its small size and its ability to be nimble and to adapt to really um, and to really develop the forum in, in, in which 
um, in which issues are are encountered and in which issues are are debated. Um, so that's, I think, really. The, sometimes people say, "Oh, Al Jazeera, oh, it's, it really transformed their world," but they don't see, well, why was it developed, and and what how does it how does it benefit. Um, the country and the political system in which it was developed. Qatar is sort of, it, and and the Al-Thani and their role in this is, is kind of left to the side. But that's really the primary um, motivation behind this uh, dramatic change in the media landscape that Al Jazeera um, created. Thinking about their uh, increasing role in both Arab and international affairs, in the book, you uh, go into quite a bit of detail about their role as a mediator in numerous conflicts. Could you talk uh, about how they sort of came to be in that role and also what seems to be a pretty impressive ability on the part of the Qataris to gain allies when they need allies? Mm. Yeah. Um, <coughs> it's interesting. Um the one of the at the end of the um, conflict in Lebanon between different parties in, in Lebanon, like the Christians, the Druze, and the Shiites and the Sunnis, all of the uh, heads of those different communities were brought um, to Qatar in 2007-2008 to the Sheraton Hotel, and Sheikh um, Jassim or Hamad bin Jassim, excuse me. Literally, he he locked everybody <laughs> into the conference room. I wouldn't let them go <laughs> until they had made a decision. Um, and not only did they they use sort of sometimes some of these less conventional um, mediation techniques, but of course they have their vast store of wealth to kind of purchase peace, if that's the proper phraseology. You it and this is something the United States, of course, did with. Um, Israel and Egypt, well, if you sign this Camp David Accord, we'll give you billions of dollars a year. Qatar can do that, but it doesn't even have to do it explicitly. Um, there's ways that through, uh, in much the same way that, that China, um, through an authoritarian capitalism, is able to be nimble in certain aspects, so too is, is Qatar with this authoritarian um, diplomacy able to make decisions that are both surface decisions and have a much deeper iceberg underneath of negotiations that go on. Um, so Qatar is actually much, just as it's sort of sticking out a little bit, there's much more in depth underneath of what's going on in its diplomatic efforts that you really can't see in the typical and the typical news of, of these things that, that it negotiates. And of course, Qatar gains um, prestige and, and especially at the expense of, um, of Egypt. In fact, under Mubarak, there were all these articles that came out in the Ahram newspaper, which is the main newspaper in Egypt, just um, spilling all of this dirt on the Al-Thani and blaming them for all these problems and say, how dare the, the Qataris do all this? Well, it's because they knew Qatar was successfully taking the place that Egypt used to hold 
um, just decades earlier as this de facto uh, first among equals among the Arab states. So it's, it, it really is extraordinary, the list of, if one just listed everything that Qatar <coughs> has been involved in, and even outside of the Arab world, there's sometimes Qatar will go down to Zimbabwe or other countries in Africa. It will, it will provide a mediating role, but then it will also have a role in extracting resources or, or establishing um, international um, economic connections and so on and so forth that are beneficial in the long run. So it's, it is a diplomacy that successfully appears, of course, to the outside as some sort of altruistic effort to develop stability and prosperity in the Middle East. But of course, there, are, there is a realism behind it too and, and real benefits that are accrued um, to the um, to the Althani and to their and to their authority um, and the way they're perceived by the outside world as again essential players um, as needing to be protected um, and as um, essential allies in in the Gulf. Uh, attribute that same sense of realism and sort of drive to gain uh, prestige in the Arab community as part of the reasons for their recent uh, arming of Syrian rebels? Oh, of course, yeah. That's that's certainly part of it. Um, and of course, it's also partially a personal um, issue with uh, the relationship between the Althani Amir and Bashar al-Assad, which used to be Quite good, but then um, the mirror feels personally as if he is his his, his, the, his honor and his uh, the connection he had with this man who was once his friend in which whom he thought he had a certain amount of trust has really broken down. So it's also very much a personal element in um, in many of these efforts as well. Even if we look to Libya, most people don't remember. Um, about this, but there was a bomb plot against the Althani and all of the emirs and sheikhs of the Gulf back in the 1980s that nearly killed everybody and it was traced back to Gaddafi and one of his assassins or groups of assassins um, back in the 80s. So there's there are oftentimes actually quite personal reasons why certain positions are taken this is again, and this is again a function of, of an authoritarian system of, of, of governance and, of course, of, of um, foreign relations. How do you think uh, the Arab Spring will affect uh, Qatar's both the internal government and also its relationship with its neighbors? Um, well, right now it seems to be benefiting. Um, Qatar and its prestige. Um, but in the long run, there may be some internal instabilities. There were some, even in Qatar, there were some um, protests that went on. And there's a Facebook page, of course, that's anti Althani and so on. Um, it's unclear if most of these people on these um, opposition pages are actually Qatari. Maybe they're um, Arab 
workers, uh, expatriate workers from outside primarily and so on. There are, um, as I mentioned before, elements within the Althani family itself that may wish for the overthrow of the current regime. But as far as a traditional pattern of the Arab Spring, Qatar really sees itself as not vulnerable to that, as immune to that system. For one reason, unlike Bahrain, for example, it is a primarily Sunni country. So you don't have those uh, potential sectarian rifts around which an opposition could really solidify itself in the same way you had with, um, um, with Syria. And again, as we mentioned before, the majority of the country is expatriate. Um, most of them are single males. Most of them have visas that could be revoked with an instant. And there's no real way of organizing some sort of effective uh, militant um, opposition to the, to the current regime as it stands at the moment. Um, so as far as the Arab Spring having any sort of real manifestation within Qatari society, I, I see it as doubtful. I don't see it as impossible. Intriguingly, I think if the Aldani do continue to isolate them, especially this clan of the ruling family, continue to isolate themselves a bit too much, um, there could be, and if there is some sort of disruption geopolitically, there could easily turn into a situation where even Qatar uh, is made vulnerable um, to uh, to some sort of effective uprising. But I don't I don't see that as as highly likely um, at the moment. I see more of a potential danger from some sort of uh, larger conflict occurring between the Arab states and Iran with the United States, of course, on the side of its allies in, in the Sunni Arab world versus Iran and Iraq um, united for some um, in, in uh, around um, a type of uh, resurgent uh, Shiism. So that's, but, but that even that is, is a somewhat unlikely uh, this is quite an unlikely scenario to occur. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you mentioned, uh, speaking of military issues, you talk in the book about uh, the U.S. military presence in Qatar and U.S. military presence in Arab countries has always sort of been a a tough issue. Yeah. How, how, uh, how do Qataris view the, the fact that there is a, a major military base in their country, because to me, it's oh, there's two. There's Asadiyah, yeah. and then there's Al Daid. Um, and CENTCOM is really centered there, mm-hmm. uh, Central Command. Um, it's interesting because there was a meeting that went on in one of these plush hotels. I think it was the Sheraton again, or maybe the Ritz Carlton in Doha, just as the um, second war in Iraq was was beginning and it was a meeting to, to protest the war and, to, and, to, and uh, to call for peace and <clears throat> as the meeting was going on the big um, supply planes and so on were rumbling over the hotel on their way 
<laughs> to Iraq <laughs> um, to take out Saddam's um, defenses. So it's 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 sort of living in the midst of a contradiction, and then through that maintaining um, Qatar's own security. As that's really my own explanation for for the for why the Al Thani elite. Um, is so comfortable with the presence of, of Americans on the peninsula. As far as the Qatari people in general, I mean, they are, of course, quite opposed um, to the idea. But in the agreement between the United States and, and the al there is um, very specific provisions that, for example, um, these American troops really, their, their, their freedom of movement would be quite limited um, there, there, the provisions behind these bases were were somewhat um, stringent in order to kind of hide away the the real existence of these places. And in fact, they aren't officially supposed to exist; they're still officially secret um, installations. What's interesting, though, is that the Qatari government and the Emir actually gave a lot of money for these um, bases to be established. He he really saw an opportunity after the, the Khobar bombings and all the bombings of U.S. bases in Saudi Arabia that, oh, well, if Saudi Arabia can't hold these troops, then really we can hold them, but then also guarantee our security, not only against Iran, but also guarantee our level of security, a level of security and prestige um, vis-a-vis Saudi Arabia. Because Saudi Arabia, even in and so in recent times has had some border skirmishes and so on with Qatar. Qatar's always been wanting to kind of break away from the Saudi um, grasp because um, it is really the dominant economy um, of, and the, the dominant power of that peninsula and just sheer um, terms of um, and just sheer economic numbers and so on, if not prestige, which surprisingly that role of, the, of, of one of the most important and prestigious countries is really moving to, to Qatar itself. So it's part of a very complicated strategic <laughs> calculation. Um, and it's one that really, well, the Qatari people may have, while the Qatari people may have some problem with it, um, I think Implicitly, do they understand the need for um, protection against the eventuality or the possibility of, of an Iranian incursion or something of that nature? And and the memory of the first Gulf War is not that far off. The, the memory of somebody like Saddam Hussein actually coming down and capturing a Gulf state. They captured Kuwait, which wasn't that different from Qatar. Um, it's still very alive and real and and people realize, well, you know, maybe this is a price we have to to uh, pay in order to guarantee our, our security against that type of of incursion. We're just a, we, we have a goose that's laying golden eggs here and <laughs> we don't want to lose it. It seems like the the price they pay and public opinion is more than made up for in the security gains, especially considering the size of the country. 
Well, yes, and remember that the Althani from the very beginning, from 1868, their position was guaranteed essentially by the British. Uh, when the British fell away from the Gulf after World War II, the Americans just were right there ready. Um, well, not immediately, but after the Carter Doctrine, were really ready to take the role of, of the imperial guarantor of the status quo. So... <laughs> Um, the Althani in a deep sense really can't forget that. And if there were, of course, the conflagration or some sort of um, problem perhaps instigated by Israel with Iran, um, Qatar would really have little choice but to be on the side of its primary ally in the United States or risk being swallowed (laughs) (laughs) rather like Kuwait was. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Going forward in the next uh, five to ten years, say, what do you see as the biggest threat to the uh, stability of Qatar and the Althani regime? Um, the biggest threat would be if a whole host of scenarios aligned um, to destabilize in a negative way um, Qatar. If there were a breaking of um, supply routes, for example, across the Strait of Hormuz, while simultaneously, I mean, Qatar does have this dolphin energy project, which allows a lot of, of oil to actually go through on the other side of the Strait of Hormuz, so it has even developed contingency plans for that potential situation. If there were some sort of major uh, geopolitical conflict in the region, um, if there was some sort of internal family feud that got out of control, especially with um, succession as Sheikh Hamad bin Khalifa al grows older. Um, if there were some sort of major worldwide energy transformation, um, I think that could have, uh, within the next 20 years or so, some sort of significant impact because Qatar, as much as it is invested in other resources, is still highly dependent on natural gas and oil. So those scenarios I really do see as, as possibilities. Um, they aren't as far out as, as one might think. Um, so as much as we see Qatar as perhaps the most stable of, of these emirates and of these countries around the, um, the Gulf, it too still has its, um, its vulnerabilities. And really a need to develop um, long-term institutions and a long-term sense of self, not just self-criticism, but self-awareness. To me, as much as I enjoyed writing this book, sometimes I feel, you know, it would really be valuable for a country to write a critical history of their own country um, in a way that engages um, the society in a way that engages these these questions on terms that, that really they can understand um, for themselves. And I hope that someday that possibility will uh, will come about. So, yeah. Well, Alan, thank you uh, very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, before we let you go, if you could just for a minute talk about uh, what you're working on now and what... what uh, projects in the future you're planning on undertaking? Oh, currently I've 
somehow been lassoed into an extremely ambitious <laughs> project. Um, I'm working on a project with um, possibly with uh, New York University Press on the um, common religious and cultural heritage of the major um, scriptural faiths in the Middle East. So the details of that will be forthcoming, but um, that's something I'm working on right now. Um, and I has, I have, I just received my tenure this year, so I'm taking a break for reflecting on on larger issues such as that. And um, I hope to have another another book out soon. And hopefully we'll get to chat then. We'll look forward to it. Excellent. Yes, I'd, I'd love to chat with you again once your next book comes out. And congratulations on getting tenured. Thank you. And have a, a good year at Fordham. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to another episode of New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. And thanks again to Dr. Fromhurst for taking the time today to talk about his new book, Qatar, A Modern History, which is available now. You can follow New Books in Middle Eastern Studies on Twitter, where we are at New Books Mideast, and also on Facebook, as well as through our website, newbooksinmiddleeasternstudies.com. Also, if you enjoy the shows, please take a moment to rate and review them on iTunes, which will help more people find them. Thank you for listening. <laughs>